Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. Today I have a fantastic conversation with a couple of legendary individuals. Our featured guest today is the founder of Heroic Hearts Project and uh, ex-Army Ranger Jesse Gould. And joining me in the conversation today is my longtime good friend and business partner and Soltara Healing Center co-founder, Miss Melissa Lynn Stangle. So today in the conversation, we dive into Jesse's journey into entrepreneurship and finding his path through psychedelics and helping others. There's a lot of really great technical and tactical information along with some really inspirational stories in this podcast. Highly recommend you check it out. Thank you for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by Soltara Healing Center in Costa Rica. If you feel called to explore the world of ayahuasca medicine in the Shipibo tradition, you can learn more at soltara.co or look us up on social media at Soltara Healing Center. Thanks again for listening. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Much love, my friends. We are live. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Daniel Cleveland Podcast. Today, I have two amazing people to speak with. Of course, to my left here, you see Miss Melissa Stangle, my co-founder and extraordinary leader of Soltara Healing Center. And on the screen in front, we have a Mr. Jesse Gould, the founder of Heroic Hearts Project, an organization serving military veterans from around the world to heal their PTSD by working with plant medicines and ayahuasca. We've worked with Jesse for the past few years. I want to kind of go back and have Jesse tell the story of of uh, how we got to know each other and Jesse's journey, which is pretty long and winding and interesting. But uh, yeah, Jesse's been uh, busting ass like a champ for the past, like what, like six, seven years or something like that, five, six, seven years. I'm not sure you can elaborate on that. But Jesse's been killing it. And uh, it's just, it's really inspiring to see a guy who is putting his heart and soul into a project, which... You know, I, I didn't know it paid so well, as you can see by Jesse's background with this, you know, $10 million library he's got behind him with a psychedelic, obviously handmade ceiling. Um, you know, apparently he's doing pretty well. So maybe, uh, maybe Jesse, do you want to like, uh, you know, let us know what's going on in your world? How you doing, man? What's, what's cracking? How's been 2020 for you? You you weren't supposed to say that last part. We're supposed to keep that part on the the low key. This is obviously not my library. Uh, it's been good. Uh, Michelangelo doesn't support heroic hearts. <laughs> he should. It's good to see you both, Melissa. It's been too long, Dan. Uh, too, always Jesse. always a pleasure. Um, but yeah, thanks for having me, and always good to talk to you. Uh, the I guess I can go into my background and and what brought us all here and, and this sort of crazy journey. Um, so I was, a, I was a military veteran in the U.S., uh, Army Ranger, which included uh, three deployments to Afghanistan. And when I got out, I had similar issues as a lot of veterans where I just had a very hard time adapting to civilian life. On the, on the surface, I actually did pretty well, uh, where I had a great job and great social network. But under, under the surface, there was just a lot of 
anxiety, depression, uh, you know, just overconsumption of alcohol, all sorts of just unhealthy habits and decisions. And I didn't know what to do. And I quickly realized that the mental health options were very limited in the U.S. and most of them involved a lot of medication. So on my own journey, that somehow led me to ayahuasca, uh, not coming from psychedelics, but as, as many probably here uh, right now, just somehow ayahuasca finds you just as much as you find it. And um, that sort of just set in motion a series of events that I find hard to describe and, and explain away. Because after that, you know, from my own healing, hearing all these stories, it was just the immediate inspiration that there are so many veterans in my immediate community and broader that are struggling. The the suicide rate in among veteran community is 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 all time high. In the past fifteen plus years, I've done nothing to curtail it. The government, the VAs, and so that's what inspired me to to start Heroic Hearts Project to to provide this information, provide this healing to the veteran community, and through when I was like starting it out through sort of a random connection, I was in Colombia in Medellin. So I started the first website in like an internet cafe that only had, you know, electricity half the day. I randomly met at a bar, a guy from Canada who was associated uh, with ayahuasca, but he was also associated to the retreat center that Melissa was working at. And so then somehow we connected and at the same time, an Argentinian crew were filming a documentary about American veterans going to ayahuasca, which is its own crazy story. And so <laughs> here, you know, a few months after my own uh, ayahuasca trip, it was just a whole nether situation. And that's how Melissa and I first came uh, across each other's paths. Cool. So um, what year was that that you started your... Uh this website when did you find yourself in this cafe in Colombia? how long ago was that when did you have your first ayahuasca ceremony yeah so it was 2017 uh actually pretty relatively recently uh but just with the growth of ayahuasca from a western perspective and and the psychedelic movement and just everything that's gone on it, it does seem like 10 years ago so you Got involved with ayahuasca in 2017. Is that when you came to Pulse Tours? Yeah. About? So it was like, it must have just been when I was kind of exiting. Yeah, it was like August 2017, yep. I believe. So we were kind of in a transition out at that point. But actually, I believe it was um, Jesse's retreat was the last kind of period for me being on site. I really wanted to stay for that retreat and just make sure you guys were were taken care of and kind of go through that that whole journey together. So... Um, yeah, we're still waiting on the documentary for that, I believe, but it did feel like sort of this inflection point from which Heroic Hearts really took a giant leap forward and we connected with these veterans, you know, that I believe you're still working with some of them as part of Heroic Hearts now. So, um, that definitely felt like a a little, yeah, inflection point for, for our journeys together, at least. Yeah, definitely. Cause it was after mine, you know, I was fortunate enough to, to find a funder and the, the first uh, group of veterans I sent was actually to, to Pulse. And I think, Dan, you might have been able to meet a few of them. There's a, a five of them. And so they all had amazing experiences. Um, and so then later in that year, that's when the whole sort of documentary came about. And that's so right. then I, I was like, of course, I have to be there. This is exactly what I just started, you know. Um, and so 
yeah, and you know, Melissa and I got along right away. Uh, she very much impressed myself and everybody else of uh, just how diligent and, and, and on point she was. And, um, you know, fortunately from there, uh, our paths have, have just intertwined and, and it's been cool to see this group sort of progress through this together and all the, all the highs and lows, you know, obviously some of the lows nowadays, but, um, there's been a lot of great healing and, and reaching so many different groups. And it wasn't long after that, that then we opened Soltara and then you came with your dad, right? It was almost like right when we opened. Um, so you kind of were like in support of this new project that we started too. And, and then you had sent some, some veterans through later. So yeah, definitely appreciate how our kind of paths have grown together over, over the years. Yeah. We, we sent one vet to the very first one that, that, that the big opening event that you had. That's right. And then I, I wanted to go at the early stages too. So I, I, it's been a while for me and my, my family, my dad agreed uh, to go and uh, <laughs> my, my girlfriend at the time, and that was actually her first time meeting my dad too. So it was a pretty interesting, <laughs> but they got along right away. So it all worked out. So you guys started, you basically started this journey by yourself on a calling based on your own experience in 2017. You got linked up serendipitously with some people who connected you to Pulse Tours. Pulse Tours, you met Mel, maybe we crossed paths. I certainly... I certainly heard about you and Heroic Hearts as I was kind of uh, exiting uh, Pulse Tours. And, um, and then you, you came into the, the fold at Soltara as well and basically continued the personal relationships that you have with us, except we moved on to a new project. Um, when did you kind of get that like idea that like, this is going to be my new full-time venture. Like this is my new calling. Like when did you actually, what were you doing before in terms of work and everything? And then was there a kind of a delineation between like, here's my life before heroic hearts and here's my life after? No, I mean, it was, it was probably more of like an avalanche. I don't think there's ever a moment where you realize that you're in the avalanche. It's just, you're just trying to <laughs> survive during it. Um, before all of this, I was in Tampa, I was in, corporate finance. And it was actually, like I said, it was a decent job on the surface. All the aspects of my life were actually like, check the box, check the box. You're doing well. Um, but it just kind of came to this point where I was just so miserable on a daily basis and I knew something needed to change. And one of the more obvious ones was the job, just because I, I quickly realized that the corporate world wasn't, wasn't for me, you know, especially coming from like Ranger lifestyle to slow down, you know, like, Civilian life. Yeah. And I, I like to actually finance, but it's just the corporate side of things where you, you are actively working to automize your job. And so you're just constantly in this like continuous loop. Um, and so when I finally committed to ayahuasca, which took some like, you know, convincing between the two parts of my brain of, you know, why are you doing this? You should do this kind of thing. Um, I, I decided to leave my job. I gave them the, the notice. Fortunately, by that time, I had some like savings. Um, I, was, I was financially able to go. And I essentially just bought the one-way ticket with the plan of, I don't know what's going on with me. I don't know what's going to happen in the Amazon. But I do know I just need to reflect. I need to get out of whatever uh, self-destructive bubble I was in. And fortunately, you know, like for me, travel is, is rejuvenating. And so my kind of plan was just to go over there, see what it's about, 
you know, maybe take some time off or, or sort of figure out, reassess. Um, but then ayahuasca obviously came into the picture and then that completely changed the dynamic of my brain. You know, like it was the relief on a lot of things. It was different perspectives on a lot of things. And so it wasn't necessarily just an epiphany that I should start this is it it kind of more of a growing almost obligation of while I was over there and it did seem to be having lasting continual benefits. Um, I just, you know, every once in a while you hear of a friend or somebody you served with that unfortunately took their own life or you talk to a friend and they're severely struggling with their family, alcohol, what have you, you know, it's just a constant sort of world that you live in. And so after coming from this, it was just like, Hey, I have to at least not push people, but at least show them that there might be a light at the end of the tunnel if they're interested in this. And just going with that and doing research, it was just kind of like a little by little. Um, but then, you know, it, it sort of took a hold of me. Like I said, just all these weird interactions that you of who you meet in random spots and, and it just going. And at some spots it, it, it slowed down. Um and I think, I think the sort of calling or the, the, the need to do it really happened after sending that first group and continues to be restored every time I see another veteran group. Because like in between those times, then it's just a very, uh, it's, it's a very hard uh, sort of dynamic, especially we all know in the psychedelic world, you're, 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 you're walking uphill with all the obstacles in front of you. And so, like, w when you're not doing retreats, it's a lot of outreach. It's a lot of keeping track of business. It's a lot of, like, the back paperwork, which is very tedious. And you're just like, oh, why am I doing this? But then, like, that, the, the New York Times piece when we were all filming there, you know, something like that, going there and just seeing these amazing transformations, you're like, all right, let's keep going. We got to keep doing this. And that's where it's, it's almost like this... Uh, you have to resubscribe, you know, and that's, that's what keeps you doing it because you have to, because there's not really other organizations or there's not really other support. And so that's what kind of keeps it going on a, on a daily monthly basis. Yeah, man, I can a hundred percent identify with that because I actually had origins very similar to what yours were. You know, I had a, I had a, a super powerful personal ceremony, which really rooted me in the medicine and really kind of like just opened me up to like, wow, this is absolutely incredible. And I just know so many people who could benefit from this and who just need to know about this. So I kind of like started this, like, I don't know where this is going, but I need to talk about it. I need to publicize it. I'm just so enthralled with this medicine and this experience. And so I kind of went through a couple of years where it was like, you know, just getting a group every six months or something like that. And, you know, and then also, and then after that kind of going back to the world and just, you know, getting back involved in the routine and everything. And I'd almost like forget about it. Like I'd almost forget how powerful it was until I took another group and then I'd be like, oh yeah, you know, and it would just solidify that. It would almost like recharge me to go just do another one. Like I do one and then fuck, I got to do another one. Yeah. Just because, you know, the transformations are so powerful, the kind of emotional discharge that people are able to, to, um, uh, experience, you know, in, in these ceremonies and the way they feel after is like, there's nothing like it. And when you 
play the part of helping facilitate that for people and they come up to you and they kind of thank you for that. I mean, I'm sure you get lots of people, lots of expressions of gratitude by the guys that you help and send down to these different places and by other people in the community who respect what you're doing. You know, that means so much. And then it motivates you to keep going and go through the paperwork and the kind of the, you know, the nuts and bolts, the tedious work that goes along with it. Um, and now fortunately, you know, we're able to do this on a full-time basis. So yeah. like we get this recharge every single week. And a lot of, I was actually just talking to one of our facilitators yesterday about this, Jocelyn. And like, that's what keeps her going is that recharge every single week where like, you just see the people come in and they're a mess <laughs> and then they leave and they're all best friends. And they're like, my whole life has changed. You know, every single week, it's pretty crazy. Melissa had uh, kind of a similar experience to you of not really knowing how it was going to play out, but she's like, I just need to exit coast. I just need to exit corporate America. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I picture the way you're talking about it. It's, it sounds like it was similar to me in that it was a tangential point in my life. Like my life was going one way and I was like, I need a change. I need to do something different. I don't know what, but I need to change my environment and, you know, maybe just see, um, what happens from there. And, and, you know, I kind of joke sometimes that it's like the plants just recruited me and we're like, you're actually going this way now, like for as far as you can go. Um, and you know, and you just really do whatever you can to, to try and make it work. And I actually remember in the early days, um, you were like running across deserts to raise money and like climbing mountains. And I don't know if you want to share a little bit about that, but that was like one of the first things I remember was like, wow, this dude's like pushing himself to like raise money. <laughs> well, I never, I never got the, unfortunately that's still uh, pending. I never got to do the full trip. I just did the the desert run. So originally okay. and still to this day, it's supposed to be a, a desert run and then a raft trip down the Amazon and then climb <laughs> one of the highest peaks in South America. But I quickly came to realize that that was going to be like at least a $30,000 venture. And I had barely oh. even like raised like a couple thousand for the nonprofit. So I don't want the funds going there. And I was just like, oh, I can't afford this. Uh, but <laughs> it was it was kind of my motivation. Was like, I have no idea. I had some business experience but I had no idea how to run a nonprofit. I'm not necessarily like a salesman. So I'm not like great at just being like, Hey, give me money. Uh, how do like, I have no idea how still to this day, how to progress. Like if I was at one of those gala events, I would probably come away with less money than, than I, I, I entered with that just cause I don't know how to progress it. And so my idea is like, I do know how to get attention and this kind of relates to what I'm doing. So like, Let's just throw it all out there and, and see what brings attention. You never know. And so at, at, after the, the documentary, I did go to uh, the Chilean desert. And it was like with a group. And there's a 250-kilometer sort of ultramarathon across the Atacama. And so that was, that was like a pretty amazing experience because you're like running through. It's a beautiful place. And there's a lot of desert and like salt flats. But then there's like canyons and water and stuff like that. And, uh, it was, it was a pretty amazing experience. I've got a couple of questions. First quick question. So, so you are basically, this is not, this is your full-time job now. Uh, I mean, essentially I, I do like, I have to do like freelance stuff on the side because to this day, uh, we've been able to keep it all volunteer. So, I mean, effectively with like time commitment is, is full-time plus, 
but in terms of I have I have to do like other sort of engagements to to pay the bills and make sure I stay eating and afford this wonderful library as well. <laughs> okay, but you're you're fully engaged in this. So um what what has that opened up in you to take on to take on a passion project like this that obviously you're not doing for the money you're doing for the effect that has in the world. You're doing it to serve other people. It's obviously a big challenge. And as you've expressed, you know, it's not like you came out with an MBA in, in nonprofit, uh, you know, enterprise and sales to like go in and raise the money and run this. So it's obviously a passion project. What, what emotion, what feeling, what kind of sense of purpose has that opened up in you as I mean, an entrepreneur, you're an entrepreneur. This is an entrepreneurial adventure. This is an entrepreneurial enterprise for you. Um, and you know, as a, as the leader of an entrepreneurial enterprise, it's a very challenging and in diverse ways kind of project. And, um, so just, you know, for the folks out there thinking about doing something that they, you know, might be afraid to do, or might, you know, not know the way yet, like how, like, what did that open up in you and how has your journey been from the entrepreneurial side of all this? Yeah. I mean, emotionally it opened up the whole spectrum of emotions and to the extremes. And I'm sure we can all like sympathize, empathize with that where from despair to questioning what you're doing and why continue on to elation and full fulfillment and self and purpose and inspiration. And it's the whole thing. And it's just the question of like, hanging on for the ride while you're doing it. But that is the human experience. You know, that is what I was searching for. When you're in the corporate world, it, it tends to be the exact opposite where you're not being challenged. It's the corporations tend to, you know, work out creativity in any equation because creativity is variability and you can't, and it's not efficiency in a lot of senses. And so, you know, especially a lot of high energy or capacity people which you which correlates well with a lot of veterans and like special ops that's a, one of the reasons why they have such struggles when they get out because they have this capacity they have this energy and sometimes it goes to the extreme where you're like just completely consumed by work but there is that need it's almost like that that kid that they used to say has ADD or they still do it's like no he it's not that he has a problem paying attention he just has this energy and needs to do something else um, so, I mean, it, it's been all, all, all of it, but through the, the path, uh, just meeting amazing people, uh, present company included that in themselves inspire you. And, and especially in the nonprofit, you get all, you get some people that, you know, you, you wish you might have not have met, but you also get some amazing people that are also willing to donate their time and, uh, and, and, and their expertise just for the fear, pure sake of helping somebody else. Uh, and so that's, that's been a really rewarding part of the journey. And as we mentioned, the people that you hopefully end up helping, uh, and then looking back and seeing that hopefully you are doing, you're leaving your past better than, uh, better than it was like you are making an impact and you are, uh, making that, that, that change and in, in your little spot in the world, you are improving that as much as you can you know they, they always say you kind of have to take care of yourself and then you can take care of your close circle and then maybe you can take care of the community uh some people try to reach and just try to change the world but as long as you can start 
helping the people that, that, that you can that are within reach as long as you're also good, then that's a beautiful thing. And I think that is maybe not for everybody, but that is sort of the essence of being human and the essence of living. You know, I think that's what psychedelics teach us too, is that, you know, we, we come from a Western society that tends to suppress the expression of emotions and especially in, in men. Um, and it's always viewed as sort of the more animalistic, dumber side of us. But what I think psychedelics often reveal is it's actually the smarter side. It's the language of sort of the supercomputer in your brain that is intuition that is guiding you. And so experiencing these emotions, expressing these emotions, putting yourself in situations where they are challenged and that they will be uh, seen by others. I think that is for many of us what the human experience is about. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. And geez, I really wish more people could experience that and should experience that, I think. And, you know, part of this kind of mission that that we're on here personally, you know, I think every single one of us here has their own, uh, their own reason for being involved in the medicine. Like, you know, like Melissa might have her reasons um, you know, to, to, to bring forward the traditions of, of the Amazon, there might be other people in the company that have their reasons to specifically like heal traumas or, you know, other people who believe in dietas. My personal, like, why for this is like exactly who you are right now. Right. It's like you hit this medicine when you were feeling like shit, it opened you up and it inspired you to go out and put yourself in the world and go through all the despair and open your up, open yourself up to all those emotions to help yourself and help other people through that and change the world in the process. And you know what? You're only three years in. I mean, it takes a while to get these things going, but congrats because you just had a New York times article that Tim Ferriss shared on his platform. Right. So, I mean, you know, we like, I, I started, basically in 2011, just very much like you did with just kind of a few trips here and there. It wasn't until kind of 2014 and 2015, three, you know, three, four years in when it really started to take root and actually started to feel like a real company. And, you know, here we are almost 10 years in when it's feeling like a real dialed in kind of organization, right? One thing I've discovered through this whole journey is that it does take time. So, you know, you, you, you go through all that stuff, but that's almost a training ground. And then you have these wins along the way, these inflection points that like you just, you put the work in for long enough, you suffer for long enough, and then you'll get one of those wins. You'll get that New York times article. And then all of a sudden Tim Ferriss is sharing about you. Then all of a sudden you get a hundred thousand dollar grant. Yeah. Right. And you never know the ripple effects that these little actions can have that transform into big actions. Like who who knows the grant, right? So the grant now will help, you know, X amount, 30, 40, 50 veterans to be able to have this experience. And that was because of, you know, the New York Times article and 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 the way that then they're gonna go forth and change their communities and themselves and the world. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things about this medicine world and this healing work is, you know, the, the exponential ripple effects that it has on the world. You know, it's, it's, you can take it really, really far and, um, and turns out the impact can be a lot bigger than, you know, we could even imagine, honestly. Well, let's just comment on that, that just for a sec, that ripple effect. Okay. So, so 
go back to 2013, right? Melissa came on a trip with me and I, I was kind of just getting started out. Melissa came on a trip with me. That set in motion a series of events in her life. And then Melissa got in touch with you. And then that set in motion a series of events in your life. And then now you're doing this. And how many people have come into your orbit who have now set in motion a series of events in their life? And then how many of those people are going to be helping other people that set in motion series of events in those other people's lives? Yeah, definitely. And I think that also brings to point of you kind of you have to have faith in yourself and you have to have faith in, in what you're doing. Because I've had so many experiences where a sure thing falls through, but then the 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 help or or the saving grace comes out of nowhere. You know, like it's just like a random email that somebody reaches out to you, uh, and it was the same thing with with the 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 things that that brought that New York Times article. And what people don't realize when they see that kind of stuff is that that was probably nearly like two years in the making from start to finish where uh the 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 person who wrote it ernesto uh ladonio um who's the the bureau chief in brazil great guy uh he reached out to me just kind of a really casual email um i wasn't sure because you never know like when somebody says like oh i'm part of this you're like yeah sure okay uh, but so i reached out and so then that started the relationship and then we kind of had to figure out where each other were like what we wanted from this, were we legitimate, all that kind of stuff, you know, especially with publicity around ayahuasca, you have to be kind of careful of where, where they're taking it. And so then that built the relationship. And then from there, it was like, okay, well, what kind of story does they want to write? And then our ability to, to fund and then organize the retreat and then talking with you and finding the right sort of time to do it um, and finding the exact right people, which, you know, you can never do that, but it turned out to be the exact right people. And then him writing it, and then there's this back and forth with the the New York Times, and then COVID delayed it, and so it was just this constant sort of thing. And so you know the process started a year and a half before it finally came out. And but that those are sort of the things you have to have faith in it because it, there's potential it couldn't have come out at that time. You know it might have still been a very small probability, but sometimes you have to kind of play those lottery tickets. You have to, what I've learned too, like as, along with patience is like, you have to do the fundamentals of business. Like you have to do the day in, day out. You can't just like count on long chances for everything, but you still have to like put it out there. You know, you still have to con contact people. You still have to give people the time of the day. You still have to have faith that something might work out. And as you mentioned, because of all those investments, especially the past three, four months have been absolutely extraordinary for us. You know, we had that article, we had the grant, we had all sorts of other connections that all hit at the same time. And so it hit me like, <laughs> like a tidal wave, but it's all good progress, but you never know. And I've had other seasons where I had five sure things and nothing came from it, you know, and that's pretty depressing as well. Well, dude, I mean, I think, you know, 2020 has shown to all of us that, even the safe option, even the sure thing, it's not safe and it's not sure. I mean, it doesn't matter what you're doing, it can fall through. It doesn't yeah. matter what you're doing, you can get sick and you can die earlier than you planned on, you know, out of nowhere. You never know what's going to happen in the world. And I think, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people suffered this year because they had taken the safe option. And then all of a sudden now that business goes out of business and they 
need to get another job with it. You know, it's like, there's just, I think it's shown us that not like the, the, what appears to be the safe option or what comes across as a safe option is almost an illusion. And so that, you know, why not take the risk and why not start the journey that gives you passion and gives you, you know, that thrill of like, you know what, I'm going to go on an adventure. My life is going to be an adventure. I'm going to venture out into the unknown. I'm going to follow my passions. I'm going to put myself to the test. You know, I'm going to, you know, have to go find the hidden gem in the, in the cavern and, you know, the, the volcano somewhere like, you know, the, the kind of the, the, the proverbial kind of fantasy adventure that entrepreneurship is really. But as you mentioned, entrepreneurship, man, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint and it's not, it's not a wild swing at, you know, um, at the, at, at the ball. It's like, you know, you've got to every single day, get up, pay your dues, put your time in, you know, have faith that have faith that it's going to work out and just run the business fundamentals. Make sure that your books are in good order, you know, make sure you're doing the right thing. Make sure you're staying, staying aware of the situation around you and making the good connections. You know what? Sometimes people don't want to talk to you. Sometimes the, the people you reach out to don't want to talk to you. You know, they're busy. They think you're small time or whatever, especially when you're getting started and that's fine. You know, don't get mad. Don't get discouraged. Just keep putting the work in, keep trying, keep reaching out, keep trying to get creative. Um, I think that extra little spice too is creates this extra energy within you. You know, it's one thing to uh, have this sort of safe life. And then when things go wrong with that safe life, you were never feeling inspired to begin with. You never maybe didn't have that passion, that drive anyway. And so then when it falls apart, you know, then it can be extra devastating. But, you know, when you are able to cultivate that that passion for the work in the face of failure, it's still an adventure, right? And so I just remember for me, like when I was working in corporate America, it was it was very much like I would wake up with a sense of dread every day for work. And that is the worst feeling that I've ever experienced when it comes to like how I'm living my life is dread, you know? And I remember right after I ended up um, working for Pulse, um, I had a dream that I was still back in 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 my old job, and uh, that sense of dread came back really, really strongly. And and then I woke up from that dream and realized I was in the Amazon jungle at an ayahuasca center, and this was my life now. And I, this overwhelming sense—I'll never forget that feeling of just this overwhelming sense of like, yes, this is pushing me to the limits. Yes, this is hard. And you know, starting Soltara, I've never been pushed to the limits more in my entire life, but everything, like every day it keeps me going through that daily business grind is because I love this work and I would not want to be doing anything else, even if it fails, you know, I'll know that I have done something that I enjoyed and, and it gets you through. And even if it does fail, then the amount of courage and experience and like like the, the tests you've put yourself through and the limits you've pushed yourself to and the expansion of your comfort zone and your realm of capacity, you know, that is priceless experience. I mean, so now you're not just pigeonholed in one job. It's like, now you can go out, like, even if this fails, you're so much more equipped to go and do 
something relevant and important and be successful in the world because you know this kind of experience you just can't get it from like a from like a typical kind of pigeonholed job in a corporation somewhere in United States where everything's automated and you're basically just kind of a cog in the machine but well, and travel is another thing. I mean, Jesse, you mentioned that, you know, that was something that really resourced you and fulfilled you. And, you know, if I had sort of stayed in my lane, I would have never even thought like I could go international and work from another country or work in another country. And, um, you know, it, that that expansion of horizons too, I think is really, really valuable to have that sort of worldly experience because then all of a sudden it's like the potential is incredibly high for places that you can go that will resource you and will inspire you. And, you know, you'll find a community that you can serve there, essentially. I think um, one, one of the beautiful things about, you know, especially related to what we're doing about like a lot of the Amazonian cultures is just their relationship to nature, life and death. And I think in some of the same sense as success and failure, because a lot of these tribes they live deep in the Amazon and they just see the cycle of life constantly. Life you know, is real in the Amazon, man. Yeah, it's but, and, very, and, it's visceral. And life is connected to death. There is no disconnecting mm -hmm. it. It's not just one ends. It's a tree falls or this, and then there's 10,000 things that grow out of it and all these bugs that, that are eating it. And it's, you can really see sort of the cycle there. And so it's the same with success and failure. These are not like static points from failure is more of a lesson. And from that success can bloom unless you just stop there, you know? And so it's just this, how do you take it? How do you recycle what you have? And I think that is the entrepreneurial spirit. And, you know, for people who are trying, you know, determination and keep going is always the key and you, you have to reassess and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, from that's what I'm fortunate that I've, I've, I was born with or, or learned along the way is just, Sometimes you just got to put your head down and keep going despite, you know, the headwinds. And if you just keep going, even in failure, even when you feel like it's, it's kind of hopeless, that's what, when you look back when you're older, you're, you're not going to regret that anytime. Absolutely, man. And, and as has been proven by, you know, many an entrepreneurial venture, including ours and including yours, you know, if you put your head down and you just keep going and you keep going and you keep going and you suffer through this and you suffer through that, you just keep going. Eventually the world sees that eventually the right people see that. And they say that organization has character. That organization has intelligence. That organization has endurance and they're relevant and we can rely on them. We can bet on that person. We can bet on that guy. We can bet on that lady. You know, we can bet on that organization. And when you generate, that's a way to generate respect, right? Respect is very important in this work and in this world. Um, and interpersonal relationships based on respect are, are very valuable. So, you know, when, when, when people test you, especially really kind of uh, successful, high-demand people, they get all kinds of requests and all kinds of, you know, pitches and everything like that. And a lot of people are fly by night. You know, a lot of people are kind of flashing the pan. You know, they, they get this big idea. They get a big inflated ego for a while. And then they try to do something. And then it doesn't work out. And they, they flounder and fail. And they fizzle out. But, you know, it's the people who stick it out for year after year after year after year after year. You get more experience. You get better at what you do. And then you just become solid. And you're stoic and solid. And you're there. 
And then when people take notice, they take notice and they say, let's learn five minutes about this, this person or this organization's history. And they say, damn, all right, that sounds pretty, that sounds pretty acceptable. So yeah, I mean, I'm willing to take a bet on this. I'm willing to, you know, share this. I'm willing to put my name behind this. I'm willing to put my resources behind this. So it really is, you know, it really is one of those games that the, the risk benefit, or let's call it, you know, the potential upside, the potential upside is really high, but you have to go through this like period of kind of self-doubt and, and, you know, you're questioning everything and you're not making any resources and you're like, you know, you just kind of, you don't know what you're doing and you're being pushed to the limits and you're failing and people are rejecting you and everything like that. But if you can just hold that line for enough time, people will recognize you and people will. And then once it's like, as you just said, you're kind of experiencing an avalanche of attention right now. And, you know, people giving you donation, like big donations and grants and everything like that. It's like, eventually you reach a tipping point, an inflection point where it's like, now the world accepts you for what you've been trying to create. And then boom, then it just snowballs. And then it's just about maintaining your integrity when that happens. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and to, and to that too, it's again, the ripples. <clears throat> I remember kind of in the story when uh, Melissa and I were first working together for the documentary, like I was, I was immediately impressed just by how, um, cause I've worked with a lot of people in the same sort of capacity, especially logistics organization and reaching out to people and making sure they have all that kind of stuff. And it's a very tedious, not fun job, but I was just impressed by her of like how on point she was, how quick she was. And she really put that documentary like together on, on, on that side that might not necessarily be seen by people who, who watch it. And it's one of those things of like, uh, the ripple side of it is, you know, if I was in the position and I saw her doing that and somebody asked me for a recommendation of who to hire, I'd be like, oh, yeah, definitely her. It's, you never know, like, how, who sees your work and, and who's impressed by it. On the topic of documentaries, too, as Melissa can attest to, you know, throughout our journey, uh, like at Paul's Tours, we did how many documentaries? We had other people come in to do documentaries. Several, yeah. And like, you know, none of them really hit hard right? We kind of had high hopes, but none of them really hit hard. And like every one we did was like, this is going to be the one, this is going to be the one years later. And none of them really landed hard, you know, like, or they, or they, they took a kind of sensational, you know, not flattering angle. Yeah, really. There was a Wall Street Journal guy that came through and he ended up basically writing this terrible article about ayahuasca. Like, how do you even like navigate media when it comes to like this work? Because there's a lot of variables involved, you know, so that integrity is really important to, you know, really getting to know. I loved, you know, Carlos and the whole team that came to work for that documentary. And obviously like you guys being involved was um, just it gave it a lot of heart, you know, and I feel like we've been cut a few breaks in the recent, uh, well, th- that's project. it. You know, yeah. we, we kind of stuck it out and then, you know, you just, you can't get frustrated and, and flustered and quit. You just keep going. And then eventually, you know, Dennis brings Brian Rose down and then all of a sudden there's reconnect the movie. Then you guys come down with the New York times. And now all of a sudden there's a flattering New York times article in a, you know, like a, an in-depth article. 
Yeah, but you know, like so flattering as you that was one of the the points because he wanted it to be even a little bit more. But they're they're trying to obviously from the journalistic perspective, they want to be like, hey, we can't come out as like pro this, so we need to have. But yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I agree. It was it was a great as as good of a picture I think as you can paint of of what all the work that we we're all doing. On that topic of determination and kind of just continuing to go, I'm I imagine and I'm kind of curious um, your time in the military. How how did that? I mean, obviously that is very much about determination and endurance and um, just curious how that maybe shaped, you know, how you kind of approach life or what lessons came from that time in your life beyond the medicine experience. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like everything else in life. It's hard to know what parts you, you come with and what parts are you learn and what parts are developed. And it's probably all three, you know, like there's probably already a lot of determination and it probably just even enhanced that or, or gave me a better understanding of it. But what a lot of people, especially so going through like a special ops as, as, as a ranger, you have to go through a selection process. And most people think it's just like the Jack dude who can run, you know, five minute miles and all that kind of stuff. And that is a part of it, but the physicality, you do need to meet that minimum requirement of physicality, intelligence, all this other kind of stuff. But the biggest variable, in my opinion, is is the determination, just the will to keep going and and not quit. Because I saw guys day one, day two, who were way more physically fit than I was and just like studs. But when it hit that mental threshold where this was finally challenging for them, they're the ones that that flustered because they're so easy physically for things to mm. to uh, go their way. And so determination is a, beyond all that. With, with any sort of stressor, no matter what you're uh, great at, there's always a way for you to meet that, that, that limit, right? You're, you, even if you're the strongest person, there, there's either always somebody stronger or you can still you know, exhaust somebody like that. If you're the smartest person, you can still stump them. If you're the most put together, you can still stress them out. And that's what selection process is for, of like, let's throw all these variables at people and see who cracks. So, I mean, through that, through that whole process and even going on into the ranger bat, uh, I think it just really solidified it and gave me confidence to where I knew how to use it as a tool or as a power. Whereas before maybe I had it, but maybe I just took it for granted or it wasn't as uh, polished as it was. And so and that, that, that probably led me some down astray because also when I was going through my mental trauma, that that determination probably limited my ability to try to take help because I had this like, Oh, I'm a ranger. I don't need, I don't need this help or I can wow. be in this dangerous situation. But, and that's all the process of life and knowing yourself. And I, you know, psychedelics can help kind of show you where you're full of BS and, and show you where is actually your, your, your inner strength. Um, but by the time and now I think it's because of what I've done and even when it gets really hard, I can be like, hey, I can handle this. Like, I at least I can take another step forward. And even if I don't know where it's going to go, and that's always sort of the mantra of like, when you're exhausted, when you are mentally, physically exhausted, when you want to cry, when you just don't think you can continue on and everything's against you, it's always just like, can you take another step? Can you hold on for 10 more seconds? And then you get to that 10 seconds. Can you hold on for another 10 seconds? And then eventually it passes. Um, like even I feel like in some some of the... The, when you're in sort of the ayahuasca journey, because it obviously it can go through waves, right? There's some intensity sides of it and it can be very intense. And so 
you know, if you just like breathe and be like, okay, it's going to be okay. And like, this is going to pass. And if you just like go with that flow instead of holding on to like, no, 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 I don't want to go there. Uh, so, you know, and I think just allowing it and then going with that, that sort of rhythm of it is, is the, a, a lesson for life. Absolutely. Uh, I think it's valuable for anything in life, right? Whether you're in the gym or whether you're, you know, in a relationship or whether you're doing an exam or whether you're going through a psychedelic, a, a difficult psychedelic experience, it's basically one foot after the other, you know, just one foot after the other and just keep stepping and keep stepping and keep stepping and keep stepping. And then eventually every time, you know, there'll be one time where, where, you know, it doesn't get better. And then that's the last time you do anything. But other than that, it's like, you know, it just, it always gets better. It always gets better. I wonder if the reason why uh, ayahuasca can be so helpful and healing for veterans or part of the reason, I, I just thought it was interesting, this contrast that you were describing of the mindset of the army ranger, military person, just pushing themselves to the limit, not accepting help because they, they are very like self-contained in their, in their role and kind of having that be um, their framework for how they live life. And then afterwards, you know, when they are uh, suffering from trauma and, and PTSD and that like how difficult it can be to accept that help and the way that a lot of plant medicine and ayahuasca works is that you have to surrender and you have to be receptive and open. And, you know, maybe that's such a, a contrast to that mindset, but maybe that mindset was pushing them too far in one direction. And so, you know, this can kind of help, help them walk the middle path. I, I don't know if that's something that, that resonates, but yeah, it definitely does. And I do think that is a major factor. You know, ayahuasca and other psychedelics can humble any single person, you know, and that I think being humbled and, and being in that venerable spot is absolutely necessary for any healing. And that's one of the hardest parts for any therapist to reach because it's very hard for certain people that are, are shelled to get to that that vulnerable spot. But you need that to, to mm -hmm. get out. And, you know, everybody, everybody has their shields, everybody has their protection. Uh, and veterans, particularly, I think they, they grow very strong shields for certain reasons, because they're in these very extreme environments, and it helps them survive and be good at their jobs. But then that shield often calcifies when they get out, because then they're struggling with these other sort of stuff. And they don't want to let the world in because before the world was a dangerous place. And so they have to do that. And then you also have the ego interplay with it. And so then you bring in ayahuasca and it makes anybody feel like a little child. And I think it kind of gets them out of that delusion of like, okay, you might've been the, the most badass person, but you've met your match. And, and then it also puts your own brain against itself. And so even if, even if you're in this contention thing, it's really your brain that's causing you this. And that's how, what people have to realize, you know? When, it, when it's, again, with a therapist, it can be hard to accept that help from somebody else because then you're just like, oh, what do they know? They don't know me. They didn't go to war. Mm -hmm. But when it's your own right. brain saying this, then you're just like, <laughs> oh, well, I guess I have no choice but to listen. Speaking of war, um, wanted to kind of get kind of a, a, a double-sided question here of like, what is the, what is the kind of, feeling and experience that, that 
veterans generally undergo? Like, what is kind of, what is it like when you're in an environment surrounded by violence? And like, in some cases, you know, you work with a lot of veterans, you're in an environment surrounded by violence, perhaps participating in violence, perhaps, you know, in a situation where you're taking lives or where people, you know, have had their lives taken or you're seeing lives being taken. What is that like? How does that strike the person in their, you know, in their heart and their inside and how does that transmute into life when they get home, when they get out? And then it, like, why, what are people feeling? What are these guys feeling when they come home? And then they, they struggle with getting into a peaceful life where that violence doesn't exist. Yeah. I mean, those are all like, those are all good issues. And I think there's a lot, a few different issues within that, which is what makes the trauma so hard. And also each person's very unique. Um, and so some people just even being on a base where they don't go out, but having the existential sort of threat or the mortar rounds dropping by on bases, like that's enough to get them into, you know, severe PTSD or sort of survival guilt and stuff like that. Other people on the other side, um, especially on like the special ops, tend to be able to have better rationalization sort of sides of things in terms of like they know their mission, they know their job and they know what the situation is. And so even though their job might be putting themselves in violence and having people around them die and uh, potentially killing other people, they can put that in sort of a um, in sort of a more understandable uh, sort of package, I guess, for lack of a better term, which which can be hard for other people to understand, but there is ways of people going into that because in that mindset, you know, you're, you're there for a reason, and these people are trying to kill you, and uh, in, in in the spectrum of you know, like let's say World War II, like those guys are bad, and so if I don't do that, then I, I can't protect these people, potentially my family, and so they can kind of rationalize it. There's probably still going to be some like residual trauma. Um, but then just also the, the situation where your stress levels are constantly at a heightened level, you're constantly wired, you're constantly in the survival mode. And I, you know, there's early evidence to indicate that when you have certain like, like cortisol and, and some certain hormone levels that are at this high level, then they kind of get stuck there after a certain time. And so that's why when veterans come home, they tend to get this sort of hypervigilance. And so that is a pretty common thing among veterans of, hypervigilance where they kind of have to always like check doors where in malls they 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 get you know freaked not freaked out but like worried or apprehensive when there's too many people um there's all sorts of different issues that like stem from that and it can be very hard and so it does seem like with a lot of veterans and especially those that have been for a while it is almost like they have one foot in the military one foot out they are never fully able to get you know, both feet into the civilian world, no matter what, you're always going to be changed, like any sort of trauma. But that's what we're trying to do is complete that transition to where they can actually live healthy lives. They can actually be, you know, their family. There, there's kind of a trope where, you know, military guys almost treat their family like soldiers. And that's pretty common, pretty accurate where, you know, they come home and they expect this to be done by their wife and kids. And it just doesn't work that way. Right. I mean, for some families, but I don't necessarily think it's healthy. Um, but so one of the things we, we, I kind of believe, especially military wise is there's so much ceremony. There's so much, um, you know, indoctrination of like, this is how you become an individual 
to working as a military group because the only way militaries function is as a cohesive unit where many people can respond to something as almost a one, as almost one and they know where the other people are they can move together um, and that's how you have an effective military unit but that takes training that takes over and over again of indoctrination getting you to think that way getting you to be conscientious of where other people are and all this other kind of stuff but there's no ceremony and there's no procedure for returning somebody back to the individual or the civilian um, to bring down that hypervigilance, to bring down some of these things that might be absolutely necessary in war, but are not necessary on you know the streets of Burbank or, or what have you. And I and like I said, there's limitations of just talk therapy because it requires vulnerability and you often hit this wall of you trying to rationalize it to yourself. And I think that's where psychedelics can really play a part way more than anything else. Cause not only do you get the potential sort of psychotherapy side of it, but it does seem to reset, you know, certain hormone levels. A lot of people I see on a pretty consistent basis that had hypervigilism, uh, that goes down drastically. Um, and you know, Rudy, he was the, one of the ones that was at that retreat and he had this complete transformation to where he was almost like hippie Rudy afterwards. And it was just sort of this real de-escalation. And he's, you know, now still even learning of like, okay, this is my new life. There's a before and after ayahuasca, uh, Rudy. And so it, it is pretty fascinating. And I think it, I don't know, it does really seem to interplay with, with sort of the military culture in that way, because it is a sort of hard thing, but it does represent this sort of ceremonial transition you know, from being a boy to a man to being a man to soldier and then soldier back to being a man, kind of a complete transformation. It's almost like returning home to yourself again, because you may return home physically, but perhaps mentally, energetically, emotionally, you're still in that battlefield. Your system is regulated to be in this, you know, hyper hypertensive battlefield situation. And, you know, I do, I, I feel like psychedelics have a way of re-regulating that system and helping people come back home to themselves internally too, and, and energetically and um, emotionally. And so um, I, I really like the way that you're um, framing that, you know, that, that there is a ceremony to go in and we need, we now need a type of ceremony or rite of passage to come back home to yourself afterwards. Yeah. What function did the actual group setting have when you guys came down with the New York Times to Sultara? Uh, like, because you came down with a group of, of all military vets. Was it a private? Um, it was a partial group. It was so a partial. In, in, in the context of a larger retreat. Okay. But your, your mention of like kind of when, when guys are indoctrinated into the army, it's like this big kind of ceremonial indoctrination the setting where where there's this bonding and there's this kind of exercise that people go through to get sorted out for action in the military but there's no ceremony on coming home is there a difference between just an individual veteran going to do an ayahuasca ceremony versus a group of veterans coming in kind of as a band of brothers to go into that emotional battle together uh yeah i definitely think so and uh, uh, even at the start of heroic hearts we always at least try to do sort of a battle buddy system because that's ingrained in you in the military uh you you have to pick your battle buddy or ranger buddy 
And when you're training, especially, you never leave their side. You always know, and, you know, privates would get messed up because they would like wander off and somebody would ask them where their buddy is and they didn't know. But it is that because it's, it's sort of like a safety thing. You always need to have somebody in your back. You know, if you are even in like a combat situation, if you are by yourself, absolutely, and you have no idea where anybody else is, so many things have gone wrong. And that's the most dangerous, vulnerable spot you're in. So even if you have somebody else, then that's at least some sort of protection. That's at least some thing that you can work with. And so at the very beginning, we always at least try to incorporate that system to where they had somebody to talk to, especially it's almost like any other profession where you get this like a very specific speak, you know, even the ayahuasca profession or the, like working with ayahuasca, you're going to say things in terms that if you just talk to somebody that didn't have any idea, you're going to be like, I don't, I don't know what that is. And so especially military culture and just ways of viewing things, pointing things out, it it can be hard for them to relate that and to talk to other people. And so having that buddy system, you know, they had a really hard experience to have somebody to talk to that they can actually, you know, bond with. Um, But yeah, I mean, since then, when we were able to having these, you know, even if it's among other civilians, having these groups, I think really adds to the dynamic because it takes them back to that sort of uh, brotherhood, sisterhood of the military. And again, uh, as as in, uh, from what we we're talking about before, that is the complexity of what we're dealing with. Is that that's another issue? Is that isolation when veterans leave the military service? Oftentimes, they're they're separated from this this cohesive unit, this this brotherhood, um, and they they tend to be isolated. They tend to not be able to relate to society or the university that they're going to. And that's a big struggle as well. Um, And so kind of bringing them back and forging them back under this ayahuasca fire, we've seen some pretty powerful uh, relationships that continue on. Um, And so, you know, with that as well, that is the power of it, of rebuilding these communities, rebuilding under, under with the help of psychedelics of having these veteran communities around the U S and the world that, already had that connection via being veterans, but now have that connection uh, being, having gone through psychedelics and, and healing through that. I can see how it would be of value for, uh, for the veterans, even to do ceremony with all civilians, still kind of having that approach of like, you're, you're a team unit, you're going into, I mean, you're not going into battle when you go into a ceremony, but in a sense you are, you're going yeah. in to confront your fears. You're going in to confront your emotions. You're going in to confront your traumas and you don't know how that's going to play out. And it's going to be a little bit challenging for the mind, right? You're going to have to kind of, you know, have courage through that ceremony and possibly endure a challenging experience. So I wonder if like, you know, what we see every week is that regardless of who's in the group, you generally come away with a group of battle buddies. You come away with a team unit where it's like, and a lot of times they keep in touch over the years. You know, we've had, we've had people come to Soltara who did their first ceremony together, like at Pulse five years ago, and have just like kept in touch over the years, possibly, you know, linked up for a couple of ceremonies over the years. And now they're at Soltara. They're like ceremony buddies. You know, they're like battle buddies that come to ceremony together. So you can still kind of build that community, I guess, regardless of whether, you know, it's all vets in the community. It's all vets in this, in the group or whether there's vets plus civilians or 
Yeah. It really speaks to the power of community as part of the healing too. I think that's something that, you know, we've really taken to heart at Soltara at Pulse where it's, you know, group sizes that foster community that are really able to connect individually with each person and and enough people that there's diversity and also small enough that there's that sense of, okay, this is an intimate experience and going through that together as a, as a family, you know, they come in at the same time and they leave at the same time. I think there's something really powerful about that. And then being able to take that back into the world. And, um, you know, I know horror carts is really has a large network that, you know, you really try and link people up within local communities too, right? Like if they're kind of in the same vicinity, um, just how important that can be and just knowing you're not alone in the struggle. Yeah. I think again, that's another thing that, you know, Western society, um, you know, can learn from other cultures is that you have these small tight knit tribes and the community supports everybody there, you know, and there's no feeling of isolation. And you're seeing that, especially now with social media, probably making it even worse is that even though we're connected, we're not connected, you know? And so there's massive rates of depression and, and anxiety because we need, we need those tribes. We need like a community to support us. We can't just, um, you know, some of the, that's kind of the interesting thing living in New York and they, they always do studies of this, like the more densely packed an area is, the less connection there is. And it's, wow. you know, like living in this apartment, if, if I lived in a small town or small neighborhood, I'd know, practically everybody in that town right but it, i don't know anybody in my apartment building i might see a few people like over and over again but i have no real connection and so it's just a wild maybe sort of you should of- try living in a smaller library man. <laughs> <laughs> it's and that is really this big irony it's like such a cognitive dissonance where in through the internet we're more connected than ever however actually it's not only is it creating this extra mask or layer of separation um, you know, between people over, you know, the, the profiles and the way that they put themselves out there, which is something of an extra mask, but it's also making it so that we're not really connecting very much with the people that are right in front of us or right immediately around us. And yeah, I, I agree. I think that's definitely something we can learn from, from indigenous communities and just the way that they, um, just, stick together and, you know, live in, in such a way that they are, the, the collective is kept in mind, you know, when, in the way that they go about living life. Well, it's like the old, you know, that's what they say with the, the old ways of, of doing a lot of this plant work. Uh, you know, what they often say is that, you know, it's generally only the, the Curandero that actually partook and, but they'd sing the Akaros, the, the tribe, and, you know, maybe some would, would partake, but it wasn't the same sort of thing. But their whole job was to protect the mental health of the tribe as well as the physical health. And so there's always this sort of group dynamic. And, you know, if somebody had some sort of mental trauma, I know in some cultures, you know, even if it's um, some mental illness or what have you, it's the whole tribe's job to to protect that and, and get out, you know, evil spirits or whatever the, the belief system is of, of that tribe. You know, it's not just like, oh, that person's crazy. Go, go someplace else, you know. Mm-hmm. So um yeah, so let's wrap up. Let's uh let's uh hear what's up in the future here for human or uh, Jesus. 
heroic cards project. I've got HHP for here. Humans. And I was like, yeah, well, for humans, but humans in your orbit. What, uh, what do you got kind of on the platter for the next, uh, six to 12 months? And, uh, how can listeners get in touch with you? How can they help out? How can people donate if they're interested in donating? Yeah, of course. So yeah, we are a nonprofit, uh, in the U S and we're working to be one in the UK and Canada as well. Um, and so, like I said, everything is volunteer. So we try to keep as much as possible where all the donations go directly towards helping veterans to send them to places like Soltara to get ayahuasca, other psychedelic based treatment. So if anybody can, you know, donate even a small amount, it, it's very impactful. It helps us continue our mission. And unfortunately with COVID, you know, we've all been slowed down. Um, we haven't had been able to do as many retreats. Um, and so because of that, you know, not only has mental health gotten worse across the world, around the world, but also our wait list has, has really exploded. So any help that people can do, heroicheartsproject.org is our website. You know, there's a donate button for veterans. They can go on that website and volunteer. There's an application. We also have an ambassador program. So civilians, veterans, professionals that want to help out and they just don't have the financial means or they just have time that they want to help, they can sign up there. Um, in terms of us, you know, it's we're we're all kind of hope, you know, fingers crossed. We're going to try to plan as many. Uh, we have one uh, tentatively planned with you, where we're going to bring some veterans and hopefully do some interesting research. Um, we've fortunately in this year we've been able to expand. We have a branch in the UK, so we have veterans over there. Uh, we have we're building a branch in Canada, so we're trying to expand there. We have a few studies going on. Um, with ayahuasca and possibly psilocybin next year. Um, and just sort of in the meantime, we're really just trying to get, continue to get the name out there and help as many veterans as possible. And as you said, a responsible, respectful way of working with places like Soltara and, and continuing this mission, continuing spreading the word and, and helping those that, that potentially want, uh, to pursue these, these modalities of, of therapy. Right on brother. Well, I really respect you. I really respect what you're doing. You know, I, 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 I love to see people doing what you're doing and, uh, you know, chasing your dream, putting in the effort, putting in the work, the blood, sweat, and the tears to do something that has impact on the world and, and, and changes people's lives and sets an example for other people. So all the power to you, man, all the props to you. Thanks for making the time today, Melissa. Much love for you, Jesse. Always an honor to work with you, speak with you. Looking forward to getting some awesome research done and and more healing work done as well, hopefully in the spring or summer. So I'm sure I'll be seeing you soon. (laughs) Thank you guys. Good to talk to you. I hope to see you soon. You know, always a pleasure working with you. And yeah, I I hope with all this, you know, I hope we we all continue to to do great things and and advance forward in, in this joint cause. Peace out, man. Have a great weekend. Yeah. Appreciate it, guys. Take care. Bye, Jesse. Nice to see you. The Daniel Cleland Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for the Daniel Cleland Podcast. We truly enjoy you sharing your time with us. If you enjoyed the episode as much as we enjoyed sharing it with you, please like the episode, review the podcast, subscribe. If you're not already subscribed, These likes and reviews and subscriptions are the lifeblood of our show. So 
free for you, super important for us. Like, subscribe, and review. Thank you so much. Of course, this podcast would not be possible without the continued amazing sponsorship of Soltara Healing Center in Costa Rica. If you feel called to work with plant medicines, ayahuasca, shamanismo, curanderismo from Peru, from the Peruvian Amazons to Costa Rica, check out Soltara Healing Center at soltara.co or conveniently 1-800-397-1730 or look us up on social media at Soltara Healing Center. All kinds of great content, nonstop, coming out, down the pike, every day, just for you. Thanks again so much for joining. I appreciate it beyond words, and I look forward to doing many more of these episodes for you and connecting. If you want to reach out to me, there's a contact form on my website, danielcleland.com. Feel free to hit me up. I read every email and try to respond to all of them. Thanks again. Much love to you, and I hope we get to catch up soon. All the best.